As I'd said earlier, we're taking the month of January to focus on prayer. And I will give you the application or my prayerful goal for you at the end of this, um, for the end of this message at the very beginning. I want to encourage you, I really want to encourage you um, this week to pray. I want to encourage you to be, become a more prayerful person. And I want you to, in doing so, I want you to come again to think that you are a child and not an orphan. Um, we used to, uh, and we've, we've done it here at Two Rivers, it's been a couple of years um, now, take a summer mission trip to Nicaragua to work with the orphanages there. And one of the things that they did as we would go is they would have a, like a cross-cultural class where they would say, uh, they would get us together and they would say, do you know the difference between a, a son or a daughter and a family and an orphan? And we said, mm, yeah, we think we can figure out the, the differences. They said, well, the biggest thing that you need to know is that even when they're put into a home or into be it an orphanage or being in, placed in a home with a mom and a dad and siblings, there's still that nagging doubt that I've got to do it on my own. I can't completely, I can't completely trust that someone else is going to provide for me. And it's proportional to the time that they've lived on their own. And so, similarly, it's true for us. The longer we've lived in self-reliance, there is that nagging doubt that when push comes to shove in the trials of my life, that God is going to fail me. He's either not going to answer in a way that I want, or He's not going to answer at all, or He's not going to answer quick enough Self-reliance works against prayer. Self-reliance, looking to yourself to be smarter or stronger or faster, to to, uh, be able to buy your way out or figure your way out, that self-reliance is the heart of an orphan. But a son and a daughter... They go to sleep at night and they don't worry about the next days. They don't worry about breakfast in the morning. An orphan does. Unless they've made provision for themselves. I want us to pray. This is my challenge. I want us to pray for the things that we're facing as people of two rivers. I want us to pray as a congregation, as sons and daughters, and not as orphans. Now I know that my two popular prayers are this, and I get this from Anne Lamont in Traveling Mercies. Help me, help me, help me. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That can be a bit of an orphan prayer. A son or a daughter certainly asks for help and assistance, but then without any anxiety they're able to rest and go to sleep because the Father has heard and will deliver them. 
That's, in a nutshell, that's where we're going. If you have the sermon notes that we put in the, on the information table each week, you can see where we're going. And the big idea of this passage, and it is a considerable passage, it's very, very long, but it's important that you get the narrative, the story, the context in which King Hezekiah prayed and interceded for his people to be delivered in the face of a diabolical enemy. The big idea this morning is when we see and when we hear, overhear, our King, King Jesus, praying for my deliverance, that encourages me to pray. When I, when I, not simply historically, but when I, in my mind's eye, when I see an invisible Jesus interceding, still praying for my deliverance of present day sins. Remember in Philippians 2, Paul says, This is my prayer for you. My prayer for you is that you will work out your salvation daily with fear and trembling. What's he talking about? We're saved, right, if we're Christians? Well, you are saved, but you're also being saved, and you will be saved. And the being saved is, theologically, it's called sanctification. But we have present sin in our life that would destroy us. We have present addictions and idols and and lust and temptations that they would consume us by their influence and power over our life. And we cannot rely upon ourselves to be stronger. We can't rely upon the flesh just for self-discipline. We need an ever-present help. We need Jesus just as he died on the cross to deliver us and for the pardon of sin, we need Jesus Christ now to deliver us from the power of sin. We need deliverance. And so when we see our King Jesus and we overhear him praying again, praying always for our deliverance, that the work that he began in us will be completed Not by our own strength, but by His grace and His mercy, by the very Holy Spirit that He sent into our life, then that encourages us to pray. We're much more hopeful. We'll bring more things to Him and hold on to them to treat them with our own strength less. I want you to see four things this morning in this scripture. Number one, I want you to see that the trial, the threat of death and captivity and cruel bondage, that that came after acts of faithfulness. Number two, I want you to see when threatened, they were faithful to pray, but they were also faithful to act. They weren't simply passively praying. They weren't praying alone. They were obeying. They were acting. They were acting in faith. Number three, 
I want you to see that our confidence to pray is grounded on the truth of Scripture. Truth that I would put in the light of rich promises. Taking those promises, our heart is encouraged to pray. And then lastly, in the minutes that remain, I want you to see that prayers for deliverance, if we overhear them, they sound agonizing. They sound like snot. They sound like tears. They don't really sound grammatically perhaps correct. Maybe you can't even make out the words. But they're prayers that look solely no longer because of weakness identified. They no longer look to themselves, but they look and they cling to God as their Father, for He alone can deliver. Without further ado, let's look at this. Uh, Verse 1. After these things and these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded. And he had camped around the fortified cities, thinking to win them for himself. Hezekiah has been a very, very good king. He has come in to the throne of Judah on the hills of even a wicked father. And he's removed all the idols, not just some of the high places, but all of the idols. And he went into what we would call the church, and he's removed all the sacred cows there, such that there is now a true form of worship for the true uncompromised God of Israel again. He's been a good king. And he's purified the nation. And he's brought them back to rely upon God as their God. And now, he receives word. I can see him rolling out the scroll. Now, there are many, many cities that he's ruling from Jerusalem over. That's where the palace is. But he's received word that on his border is Assyria. They've taken over Samaria. And if you've got one of those Bibles uh, that has the map in it, you can see where Samaria there is on the border of Judah. And they're starting to put, they're starting to surround. And they're various cities, I mean, they're cities of various sizes, but he's starting to surround some cities and put up siege works. And they're falling one by one by one. Assyria under Sennacherib was a major world power. Jerusalem was not. A hundred to one by some estimates. They had warriors. They had trained warriors. Skilled men. They had chariots. Chariots of iron, it says. And they were very skilled in taking over and gobbling up all the countries. And they have long wanted to conquer Judah. And now they're coming. And it appears that there'll be nothing to stop them. And so you have to pause and ask the question, really? I mean, I've been doing so well. 
I've been doing so good, and I've actually been doing some good things for God. I've, I've gotten plugged back into worship. I'm bringing my family to worship again. Um, I'm, 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 I'm praying. I'm starting to read my Bible again, maybe even journal. I'm, I'm getting back in a walk, in an intimate fellowship with Jesus. And I've done some things sacrificially, um, not to serve myself, but to, to, to be obedient and to, and to serve God. And then, boom, trial hits. It seems like unfair wages. But that's not the purpose of trial. James 1 tells us that we're actually to welcome trial because count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And then he tells us the purpose of it. For it's not punishment. It's, 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 not, um, it's not a consequence of bad behavior. It's not unfairness. The purpose is... For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness. See, Hezekiah has been serving, but what will he do in a trial? When do you pray, by the way? When do you pray the most? I pray the most, not in good times, but in hard times. That's when I pray. Hezekiah, what will he do now that they face a trial? You see, he's a king. Is he now going to rely upon his own resources or is he going to turn to God? And as we're going to see, if you look down to verse 7 and 8, we see that Hezekiah tells them to turn to God. And over in verse 20, we find that Hezekiah and his prophet, who is Isaiah, the son of Amos, prayed because of this and cried to heaven. As this trial, this assault unfolds, the siege works are not raised up against them, but it's out there and they're coming. Then Hezekiah, by this trial, gets busy, but he doesn't rely upon himself, he relies upon the Lord in prayer. So the question is, Hezekiah, are you going to be like the children of Israel, the children of God? That was the moniker for Israel, that they're not just worshipers of a God, They actually call God their creator and their father. They they call themselves the children of Abraham, the children of God. Or are you going to act like a child that you are? Are you going to operate like all other kings? Kings had vast resources. They had authority. They had power. They also, many of them had experience and wisdom. Are you going to be a different king? And from the very beginning, you need to know the history of Israel. They did not have a king. Why? Because Samuel the prophet said, 
God is our king. And then God said, let them have a king, but I will be the king over him. Such that David, King David, when he assumed the throne, would say, yes, I am the king, but I'm a steward king. The real king, the king behind the throne is God. And Hezekiah, will you be a child who sees God as the real king and look to him? Or are you going to be the king? Are you going to be like Sennacherib? You're going to be like all those other kings trying to figure it out on your own. Secondly, verses 2 to 6 show us that he got really busy. It says that when it was evidence that there was going to be a fight, then he gets busy. He redirects the water. He plugs up a lot of the wells so that when the troops do make it there from Sennacherib in Assyria, <coughs> when they finally make it there, they're not going to be able to go to the stream and dip water. It's been covered over with let's say, uh, pipes, they are laid down, then, then covered over, and then that water's directed inside the walls of Jerusalem. All the wells in the surrounding area have been plugged up, and then that water would be forced to go into Jerusalem, but it would be arid and dry, and the men, a vast army, cannot carry water in. It was very strategic. Historically, we find that it actually worked. Then also it says that not only did he do plug up the wells, but that in verse 5, he began to build up the wall, then he raised tara, towers around it, and then he strengthened the Milo. Some, one article that I read said that the walls were 21 feet thick. Not high, but thick. It didn't say how high they were. Thick. So he built up the walls. Then, in verse 6, he set commanders over them. And he spoke encouragingly to them. He began now to get organized. He organizes people to be militant and to fight. All this is to say that... I like Hezekiah because he's not only going to pray, he's not only going to show that in this trial he's going to look to God instead of looking to himself, but he is looking for his part. He is looking to say, I will continue to go in this direction, but with prayer. I will continue to obey I will continue to build up where I can. I'm going to continue to, to, to be active as well as to pray. Verse 7 and 8. He then speaks to the people, and what he gives them are all promises. It should strike you that they're familiar. Be strong and courageous. That's Joshua. That's Joshua when he came into the, he was preparing to go into the land of Canaan. And God came to Joshua. Joshua was Moses' number two man. And now he's the number one. 
All eyes are looking to him to do something that Moses had not done. They had turned away at the border before because of the giants. And now Joshua is getting ready to lead them into a land that was occupied. Into a land that would take them captive and enslave them unless they were successful. God comes... I believe, to an anxious heart, and he says this. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all these people, into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I've given to you, just as I promised to Moses. Down to verse 5. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and courageous. Hezekiah is quoting that. When he... When he says that, all of the people, their heart indeed would begin to turn again to the promise, the ancient promise to Joshua and to the children of Israel that God will do his part. God does hear us and he's asking us to be strong and to be courageous in the face of trial and in the face of threat. It's a promise. And Hezekiah recites that to him. He then goes on, and in verse, uh, at the end of that, he says that, that before the king of, don't be dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the heart, horde that is with him, for they're more with us than with him. More with us than with him. This is the instance in 2 Kings. 616, where Elijah at that time was surrounded by the Assyrians. And as they were surrounded, it was just him and Gehazi, his assistant, and they were terribly afraid. Not Elijah, but the Gehazi. And Elijah said, Lord, he first told Gehazi, he said, they're more with us than they're with them. And then he prayed, Lord, open Gehazi's eyes so that he can see. And his eyes were open and he cried out, Oh my Lord, the chariots of fire, the troops of heaven, because the hills, he could then have eyes to see that the hills were filled with a heavenly host or a heavenly army. But they had previously been invisible. They have previously not been seen with the naked eye. They could only be seen with the eyes of faith. They could, it could only be a promise that was taken and believed, rested upon. That's faith, resting your weight upon the promise. Against all odds, against everything you could see to believe that those with you are greater 
than those that you see. And then Jesus. In Matthew 1, verse 23, we read that Joseph was instructed in a dream to give Jesus at his birth the name Jesus, Emmanuel, for he will be God with us. A fulfillment, by the way, of the ancient prophet Isaiah. And then in Matthew 28, verse 20, Jesus' last words to the disciple. He's giving them the great commission, but his last words there in Matthew are this. For lo, I will be with you till the end of the age. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Put it all together. When you're in trial, when you're in crisis, would you take these three promises? Number one, would you ask the Lord to speak to your heart and give you strength, give you courage of faith to believe in Him once again, to trust in Him once again, it doesn't make sense to, to look to him and what he will and for his deliverance, but make me strong, keep me faithful, make me courageous. Secondly, as you begin to pray, Lord, open the eyes of my heart that I may see that greater is he that is within me than he that is in the world. And then number three, Jesus. I take the promise that you will never leave me or forsake me. You're here with me in this trial right now. That means you're mindful of it. You're not off running the universe and it's like, oops, I'm dropping Phil. I forgot. I, I, I wasn't paying attention. No, he's right there. That must mean he has a purpose in that trial. That must mean that he can say, be strong, little one, endure. I am at work and this is a bitter medicine now but it's for your good it is strengthening you it is making you steadfast it is causing you again and again to look to me as a father and you as a child and not you simply for self-reliance verses 9 through 20 there's a lot going on here but let me let me end with this You've got two kings. King number one is Hezekiah. King number two is Sennacherib. King number one, he sees himself as a ruler, a steward over all of God's people. He is God's man in charge of God's people. King number two sees himself as a dictator. People exist for him. As C.S. Lewis said in the screw tape letters, the devil looks at people like prey, like food. But God looks at people like sons, children. King number one, Hezekiah, he looks out and he sees sheep. King number two looks out and he sees slaves. King number one, Hezekiah, he encourages confidence by getting to work and building up the kingdom. King number two, he encourages fear 
by building up siege works. He begins to show us, he begins to threaten, he begins to give us evidence, reason to fear, reason that we see here. King number one, he calls attention to faith in the invisible. God was not walking among them physically. But King Hezekiah calls attention and says, God is with us. We are God's people. We can look to him as children look to a father for deliverance. King number two, he calls attention to sight in the visible. He says, look at our army. Look at the nations that we've conquered. Look at our siege works. Look at the cities that are falling around you. One calls our heart to look in faith to God. The other one rules that out and says, just look at the visible. King number one. And this you can get from 2 Kings chapter 19. Um, He cites history of deliverance. He says, we're God's people. We can justly expect him to deliver. He has delivered us in the past. He will. We're relying upon him and him alone to deliver us now. King number two cites history of no deliverance. He says, look at these other gods. They didn't deliver. Your God will not deliver. Verse 19, they spoke of the God of Jerusalem as they spoke of the gods of the peoples of the earth, which are the work of men's hand. And then lastly, king number one, he trusts alone to God to deliver. The other one trusts only himself. In fact, he mocks, mocks God to deliver anyone. And isn't that how Satan works on us? He gets us to look at our circumstance and we begin to do something called logical deduction. Except in the math, we leave out grace. Last night I was watching uh, Sing, uh, the animated, uh, the children's movie with the animal characters who are take uh, part in a singing competition. It's quite cute. I was watching it with Emerson, though. It wasn't date night for me and Wendy. We had Emerson, our granddaughter. And uh, there's a point, a turning point, that is sad. And Emerson immediately begins to cry. She's not seen it. She doesn't know how it's going to turn out. So to her, it's just over. It's disastrous. And I mean, it's not like, oh, that's so sad. It's more like, ah! Because she can't, she, and, and Wendy and I are like, well, well, honey, this is, number one, it's just a movie. To Emerson, it's serious. It might as well be a, a documentary. But Here this man is losing all of his theater and everything's falling apart without any hope. I mean, a theater's being, it's destroying it. It's falling in upon itself. So as far as her calculation goes and from what she sees, it's all over. That's what Satan does. In the math, he shows us an event a trial, and then in our responding, too many times we leave out God's deliverance. 
We don't know because we don't know what it's going to look like or how it's going to come or necessarily even when it's going to come. Sometimes we think it's not going to come. But all we're asked to do, folks, is to pray, to do the best we can, to try to build up the walls, certainly, but all the while to pray and be strong, be courageous, continue, endure in your prayers. Know that He is with you. He's not abandoned you. He'll never leave you or forsake you. He's right there at your side. Satan also will position God as very angry. Um, and we know that that's the, the false voice. The king of Assyria, Sennacherib, at one point would say, hey, don't you know it's because you've overturned all these idols. You've, get ri- you've gotten rid of all these other things. And so obviously God is mad at you. And that's not the case at all. The case is, is God is very, very pleased with Israel. The case is, is that when Hezekiah says in verse 20, when he and Isaiah begin to pray, and you can read about this in 2 Kings 19, he sets before, but right in the, the temple, when he goes in with Isaiah to pray, he rolls out a letter. And that letter has come from the king of Assyria. That letter is further psychological warfare or trash talk about how small your God is, how puny your God is, how you are foolish to look to this invisible God for deliverance. And Hezekiah sets it all out. And I believe with great courage and confidence, he says... Lord, here it is. This trial that we face is an opportunity for you, our God, the only God, our God, to deliver us for your name's sake. Not simply for their good. Though God always has that in mind, but for his glory. In other words, God, this is a fight that is set up for you to win, to make much of your name. And that will make much of us as a people that look to you and you alone in our trial. And God answered. And again, there's encouragement for us to pray. Lord, at this trial that I'm facing right now, if this trial that I'm facing right now, even if it destroys me, but it brings you glory, then I pray that you would use it to do so. I pray for deliverance in the trial that I'm facing, but I'm not praying for deliverance that will simply result in my good. I'm praying for it to come in such a way that all who hear and all who see will say, number one, an invisible God that I look to answered prayer. Number two, it was a prayer that I could not answer simply on my own, 
and I did not rely upon myself alone, but God in his power answered. And then number three, that God would receive glory. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, right now I pray that we would bring the most fearful thing in our life to you. What threatens to undo us? What's a trial? What, what causes us to be a bit anxious? What do we worry about? Father, I confess that there are many times that we worry and we're anxious because we don't know how we are going to solve it. This morning, forgive us of that. May we now look and ask, Father, into your hands we give these matters, these trials. And we ask that you would make us a people that when there are trials that we face, that we would look to you again as our king and we would see you, Jesus, always interceding. You love to take up our trials when we bring them to you. And that we would, we would hear you interceding on our behalf and praying alongside of us. We would know that we can bring these things to you confident that you are with us and that you will answer. And then, Father, on the day that you answer, may we raise your name and bring you glory. Father, once again, shape us and mold us to be sons and daughters who can live not as orphans who do not have a father, but who are quick to look to you to meet our needs, even as we are your children through Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.